Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have had some bad days. We have had some good days. Yesterday started off as a bad day and didn't end up that way. Um, And today, who knows? Chris Marenghi is the co-chief investment officer at Gamco. Um, What do you do in a market like this where everybody is trying to digest uh, the news from the United Kingdom, figure out where the United States is going. And at this point, um, it's a risk on, risk off every other day, it seems, alternating mood. Well, yeah, I think uh, it's been two weeks and, and the market has more or less digested the news. Uh, it's going to be a long uh, road to determine where the UK goes from here, what the relationship with Europe is. But in the meantime, you focus on a, on a stock-by-stock basis. You look for individual companies. How are they impacted? What's the range of outcomes uh, that can occur based on the level of the euro, the pound, um, get trading relationships with, uh, with the continent? Is there anything you really want to buy right now, or do you kind of just want to sit back and watch? I talked to Bill Gross yesterday, and he said, with bonds at these levels, no way. Well, certainly equities look, on a relative basis, a lot more attractive than than bonds today. Um, There are good cash-generating companies around the world that you can buy. Some of them are takeover candidates. Some of them are financial engineering candidates. And that's generally where we focus. Uh, There's certainly been a focus in the market on uh, on uh, U.S.-centered companies, and that tends to be our bias. It's summertime. You know, one of the companies we're buying is a, a baseball team, uh, the Atlanta Braves, which you can buy publicly now as Liberty Braves. Um, it's an interesting story. John Malone is involved. Uh, I think it's undervalued and think that that team will continue to compound growth. It's been around since 1871, <laughs> Boston a, Red Stockings. There's a, a really, yeah, and then they were the Boston Braves and yes. the Boston Bees and the Braves again. And they moved to Milwaukee. Interesting, really interesting story, Tom, I read on the way home last night from Washington, D.C. about how the, uh, the Atlanta Braves – are trying to manipulate parking prices around their new stadium. It, know, well, send folks it, to ESPN it, to get the. It details, is a but. profit-seeking uh, enterprise, uh, so they're they're allowed <laughs> to do that, and we're happy that they're doing I, that as shareholders. I mortgaged the middle child once to go see the Red Sox play during the World Series. That's how much the parking cost. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, said, you got to leave the kid in the car. He said, "We can do that." <laughs> given where the Braves are in the standings, um, gives a new meaning to the term "buy low." I I believe it does. Uh, Do you care what Michael McKee did with the minutes yesterday? Michael McKee dashed down to Washington to look at the minutes. He spoke with William Gross of Janus, joining us tomorrow. Do you care, Chris Morangi, about the Fed chat now within your investment world? Sure. Uh, You know, we take these uh, macro uh, variables, including the, the level of interest rates and inflation, and we put them into our micro forecasts for individual companies. Uh, so it, it is important. I think uh, uh, we don't get uh, very exercised about a 25 basis point move or not. Um, you know, we're generally looking three to five years, and we assume over that time frame, rates will move off the bottom. Do you do the markets tell you anything about value these days? I mean, given the, the distortions from the central banks? Uh, well, you know, I think you see uh, what, what's more informative is what strategic buyers are doing. And again, an example of that this morning with Danone paying a very big price for White Wave. Um, you know, we're looking at inf- what informed buyers are paying to, to own a stream of cash flows, a growing stream of cash flows in the future. 
uh, I think that's a bit more informative than uh, than what the Fed is trying to do. I, I know what I wanted to ask you, and I got distracted by the Atlanta Braves, which fascinating story. But um, you said you were looking at things overseas. You have to change money to do that. Yeah. Uh, with the volatility we're seeing in currency markets these days, is that you know a worthwhile? Is that a risk? Yeah, so generally we, we run our portfolios unhedged. Uh, so implicitly, in, in some cases, we are taking currency risk. Um, you know, Did you buy anything in England like last week? Yeah, <laughs> no, week and, and there are you know, companies that we've followed for some time that uh, we thought were oversold. Uh, some, you know, I think there are three categories. You've got companies that become more competitive because they've got costs denominated in pounds. You've got companies that have uh, large non-UK businesses that get a translation benefit, and you've got uh, M&A uh, candidates that appear. Just so you know, there's a plaque on the back of that chair. One day, Mario Gabelli sat in that chair, and he said, Cadbury, and like three days later, it was taken out. Yeah. Would you like to give us a heads yeah. up on what's going to be taken out <laughs> well, three days later? I mean, it's interesting. One of the areas that we follow is, is the food group globally. Uh, yeah. Cadbury was an example of that. Um, which uh, became uh, Kraft and now Mondelez. And, you know, a few days ago, obviously, the news about Mondelez buying a great American or attempting to buy a great American icon, Hershey Foods. Uh, you know, I think you're going to continue to see consolidation in, in the food and, and consumer but, products. But to area. be blunt here, this is a massive FDI to the United States. I mean, what I'm seeing here is the, the gurus of corporate world and their consultants are saying, we call those bankers, by the way, their consultants are saying, buy America. Is that the bull case for U.S. stocks? Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's changed in you know over 200 years. But is it enhanced now? Agreed, it hasn't changed. Uh, yeah, certainly on a relative basis, it, it has. Um, you know, notwithstanding uh, the disruptions, the potential disruptions we have in this country uh, with our own elections, you know, Buy America, I think, is a pretty safe safe bet. But at some point, it does become too expensive, and there will be opportunities overseas to to pick up some bargains because Europe's not going away either. You okay over there? I am. I'm looking up the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> hey, By the way, it, you know you can buy a European sports franchise. It's called Man U. Yeah. Man U. And they've done better. Uh, they've done better. That is also a global franchise. They have uh, a, a huge growing uh, fan base in China mm. and the Look opportunity at, to monetize that fan base in China. Okay. Somebody can tweet this in or maybe you know. Uh, isn't um, – Liverpool, part of uh, a publicly traded group that John Henry owns. I, mean, I don't know if the Red Sox are in it, but uh, Boston Sports. I, I don't know that for a um, fact. I, I, they may be. Anyway, somebody can tell us that. Morgan Stanley's Benjamin Swinburne follows the Liberty Braves group. He's the only analyst, and he has a sell well, rating on the group. 12-month target price of $14 right now, I lobby, selling I, for fourteen fifty-two. I, I lobbied for public shares in the Red Sox, but... Part of the prospectus, the red herring, was that we would dictate their middle relief into their late <laughs> I suppose, relief. Chris, this is a buy and hold for you guys for a while. <laughs> it, it certainly is. And by the way, therein lies the opportunity. One analyst following uh, that stack. Yeah. And uh, Ben Swimmer's a terrific analyst, but we disagree. That, we <laughs> like that. That's what keeps us going. Chris Marangi, thank you so much with Gamco uh, on the Atlanta Braves and, on, of course, on media. Uh, much to talk about uh, there. Well, there is, as we've noted, a lot of confusion in the markets over the 
last 10 days or so about what to think of Brexit and what it means for everything. A.J. Rajadishkin has had the um, fortunate or unfortunate job as Barclays head of macro research to put some numbers on all of this. And they have just come out with their latest global outlook. And he joins us now. Uh, A.J., um, you actually do have a number now for um, the uh, global growth forecast uh, and for uk growth in the wake of brexit what do you what do you see so uh, michael we are not amongst those who think that the uk leaving is a trivial thing and there have been some analysts who have come out and said that we think the primary transmission mechanism is through uncertainty spilling over into you know a loss of confidence both for the business sector and the household sector and this is a real tangible thing it's not just a hand-waving qualitative soft measure businesses put off investment decisions households put off purchasing big ticket items you're already starting to see that play out it's early days yet but our ballpark numbers are that Pre-Brexit, we were assuming that the U.K. would remain, and at that point, we forecast 1.9% growth for 2017. Now we see a mild contraction of 0.4%. So it's a 2.3 percentage point swing for next year for the U.K., a 1.1 percentage point swing for the European Union, and global growth, like you said, we think will, will drop about 50 basis points relative to our pre-Brexit forecast. So these are not trivial numbers in a world where the global economy has already disappointed for the last several quarters. Well, you're fairly certain here. Uh, the markets are not. What's your confidence interval for these kind of numbers? The equities markets, especially in the United States, have actually held up pretty well. And we think there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is the slow-moving nature of future steps by the United Kingdom, right? You extend something long enough and it does buy some time for broader markets. Remember, you know, there's now speculation that the U.K. might not trigger Article 50 until at least Christmas of this year. So until then, the clock doesn't even start. And number two is uh, soothing noises made by central banks. But I will mention this. Even though the equities markets, equities investors seem relatively sanguine, Bond investors are screaming their anxiety at the top of their lungs. Ten-year U.S. yields have rallied about 40 basis points from pre-Brexit. All right. The Fed rate hike is now almost completely priced out until the end of 2018, even as Fed officials keep insisting that, you know, they, they want to hike this year. And uh, the pound just dropped about 15% or so relative to where it was two Thursdays ago. So... I, look, I don't want to draw too many parallels, but uh, and, and you know, I don't mean to uh, extend this analogy any further. But the week that Lehman happened, the equity markets, if I remember correctly, ended up on the week. You know, and then they bottomed out four four months later. We have a, an underweight to equities, and we are still overweight U.S. fixed income. Something that's worked out extremely well, well for us. You have, you have a sentence, AJ, in your report that's incredibly uh, important. And it's a double negative. You're looking for the least unattractive alternative. Yep. Boy, that's a difficult way to invest, isn't it? It is. It's so much easier when you are an advisor telling investors what to do as opposed to actually having to put money to work, as my clients do. But you're absolutely right uh, that that it is a it is a difficult needle to thread. Uh, U.S. fixed income, right? Ten-year Treasury is below 140. Really, are not attractive by historical context. 
But where mm-hmm. are you going to go? You know, I mean, Japanese bond <clears throat> yields are not an asset class that one should invest in anymore. Neither is most of the euro area. These are large swaths of markets that are closed, right. you know. We're talking with Thajay Rajadishka, uh, Barclays head of macro research. Their new global outlook slashes growth forecasts for the world, for the UK, for the euro area. But you say in there, you note uh, that markets are not properly priced for that kind of outcome. Are you talking equity markets? Because a lot of people would look at uh, bond markets, would look at currency markets and say, yeah, they're, they're, putting, <laughs> they're putting bad news into those markets. I think uh, you could argue that the bond markets have, you know, are almost at levels where it's difficult to justify valuations no matter what the economic outlook, right, especially outside the U.S. But in the U.S., we think they are largely correctly priced, but equities markets, we think, are still more optimistic, still take a more sanguine view of the world than we do. They're, they're not priced for downside risks, potentially, especially, you know, further downside risks coming from the euro area, in our opinion. What would be uh, proper here? I mean, how much would you have to cut? Look, so the single biggest thing that I worry about for the next 9 to 18 months is the prospect of another country leaving the eurozone but in this case not leaving the european union it would be a country leaving the european monetary union right it's one thing for a country to leave the european union if it's not part of a currency union which is the case with the united kingdom it's a big deal but a much bigger deal would be if if markets took seriously the probability of of the netherlands or you know any other country that shares the euro going in the direction of its own referendum. That is the reason why this, the UK leaving is as big a deal yeah. as it is for the European Union. And, and that's, that, that, I think, I mean, I don't know how to price that. That, I think, would be a repeat yeah. of AJ, of, in your report, you, yeah. t- you touch on a theme that Michael and I have had, which is the idea of you can talk all you want about reflation, which I believe means yields higher, bond prices mm-hmm. lower, people take price losses, great, but doing reflation is harder than talking about it. Do you Absolutely. have an optimism that five or six major bond areas, U.S., Europe, Japan, do you have any optimism in reflation? So the one place where, there is, where I'm least pessimistic would be the United States, right, where there has been a gradual recovery in actual inflation numbers over the last few months. It does seem like the U.S. labor markets are at a point where wage growth should start to tick up quite significantly, right? Except for, you know, except that that has been interrupted by weak payroll reports mm-hmm. over, over the last two or three months. The euro area in Japan, for example, it's harder to to be optimistic. The one thing that we are learning, Tom, is that central banks can prop up financial asset prices for an extended period of time, but that really doesn't always lead to credit expansion, which is the ultimate end goal, right? That that hasn't happened in the in in the in Japan for example and it's happened far less than people would like in other parts of the world that is exactly what bill gross is arguing in his latest investor newsletter out yesterday that we were seeing 9% plus credit growth um, a couple decades ago now we're down to 3% and it's not enough to power the but, economy the global economy forward i think that's absolutely true uh, honestly the, the other prong that central banks have used, right, is extremely low or negative interest rates. 
and there are some signs that even those might no longer be as effective. Okay. Clearly, the markets don't like negative interest rates. You've seen just complete, you know, collapse in in valuations for financial sectors in both Europe right. and Japan once once NERF was introduced. So. I think we need fiscal help for the global economy as a whole, but for that you need political will, and that will only happen once risk assets are lower than they are right now, we believe. Yeah, but here's an example. Danone folks today is buying soy milk. Mike, have you ever had soy milk? Yep. You've had it? Yeah. Do you like it? Not particularly. AJ, have you had soy milk? I have not. Thank you. Okay. I haven't either. It's in the refrigerator in the door, and I'm like, what is this? Go stand in the coffee shop downstairs and listen to people who are asking for their coffee Exactly. Nine-year Danone paper in euros has a coupon of one and an eighth percent trading at a premium to yield something in the vicinity of 0.58% for nine years. Would you explain to unsophisticates like me how an insurance company that has my retirement plan can make their actuarial assumption? I have no idea right now how they do that. I think that's a simple answer. They, 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 They cannot. They have to, you know, the bond markets are largely closed. To, or should be closed, right? Insurance companies should not be investing in, in this kind of paper. But this is for such large parts of the fixed income market that then they end up having to pile into equities, you know. Oh, no, stop. Oh. They go into property casualty companies in the United Kingdom where they're enjoying illiquidity in a 17% haircut right now. Where That's is right. our serious money? I mean, is everybody in cash? See, the thing is, in large parts of the world, you cannot be in cash because cash is not zero, right? For for retail, it is. For institutions, it is not. So, you know, that is why you end up having extreme valuations. That is is in part how you end up having high yield in the U.S. return 10% in the first six months of the year. Asset prices everywhere, in fixed income, in equities, everywhere, are pumped up to levels that are not justified by, by the economics. But... Okay. You know, until something gives, I, I, you know, we, we are not going to see a way then, forward. AJ Rajadox with you and Michael Gavin at Barclays. Does this unwind with smooth glide paths that our listeners can understand, observe, and react to? Or by definition, does this impossibility in bonds unwind with a jump condition of brutal moves and brutal results? I think when it does unwind, if and when it does unwind, it almost by I don't see how it doesn't end up being extremely painful for a very large swath of the investing population, uh, which, you know, uh, there's almost a little bit of a catch-22. That, in turn, spills over into the broader financial markets, and then bonds get a bit back, right? So this this is just going to be very, very messy. But that is something that I don't think we'll have to deal with for the next few quarters. When it happens, it'll be very painful. What's the uh, what, what, what's the, your forecast for what central banks do? Do we get easings from the ECB, BOE, and BOJ? Do we get an increase from the Fed? <laughs> So, so, the, so the Bank of England uh, has already come out and made, you know, lots of noises about easing further. Uh, the ECB, we think, will extend QE past March 2017, almost certainly. And there's some question about whether the ECB walks away from using the capital key 
for its bond purchases, which would help, you know, Italian bonds, Spanish bonds, you know, they buy less of bonds, but God knows bonds don't need any help at minus 20 basis points on 10-year on bonds. The Bank of Japan, we think, will also do further QE, but I think none of these central banks will go in the direction of further negative interest rates, which is something they've tried over the last 18 to 24 months, and it really hasn't helped. So it'll be balance sheet expansion. Right. The Fed... You know, the, the Fed, uh, we, they keep making noises about hiking this year. Markets do not believe them. It will be interesting. It will be a close call as to what happens. For now, we are still saying, you know, just because they keep saying it, that September is still, you know, still on the books. But, but right. the risks are, again, to, to that not happening. One thing I'm bringing up recently, very quickly, R.A.J., and we'll let you go. What's your euro call? I mean, but you've got, a, you've got an on-the-fringes call, right? That's right. So we think the euro will keep weakening. Uh, uh, to some extent, it's contingent on what happens with other countries wanting to leave the European Union. And if, if that seems like it's a realistic scenario, then the euro will has a lot more room to fall. We, for now, we think it goes down a little more, 107 to the dollar by the end of the third quarter. AJ Rajanak's fascinating, just absolutely outstanding. Thrilled to have you on today. Skip York with us, with Woods McKenzie. He had to move to someplace cooler. So he came to New York, 98 on Friday, 98 on Saturday, 99 on Sunday. That would be Houston, Texas. Thank you for the Houston weather we're having here right now. What do you do in Houston when it's this hot? You don't go see the Astros, right? Well, actually, you do go see the Astros because it's a covered stadium. It's a covered stadium. Yeah, so it's free air conditioning. <clears throat> Any tips for our New York audience and those down the eastern seaboard? Some Seriously, folks, with some serious heat and 100-degree temperatures in some of this. What, what's the Skip York trick, trip for heat? Uh, I would say it's, it's three things. One, don't wear a suit. Two, <clears throat> wear light-colored clothes. And don't uh, wear a bow tie, right? Yeah, yeah, and don't wear a bow tie. And, uh, and the third one is hydration. Despite the fact that it's humid, hydration is, is key. Okay, there we go. Your health tip for the day. How's the health of the oil market? It's ambiguous now. Lots of other things going on. But let me cut to the chase. Has supply cleared? It, it hasn't cleared yet, but it's well. we're well on the way. There's a uh, trend so. there that gives you optimism. That's right. That's right. And uh, because of the capital cuts over the last two years, it's a trend that can't be easily reversed on a global basis. So we're heading... Uh, towards the rebalancing, we think it starts. You're going to really see it in earnest later this year and through 2017. Is it a J curve or a Skip York curve in that we enjoy lower prices before we get the higher terminal value you've been um, adamant about for months? Yeah, I, I think um, it, I, I think the lower the lower price risk environment, uh, the lower price risk <laughs> is really kind of driven by these external factors. If you're just looking at the, the fundamentals, we ought to be sort of flattish through the rest of this year and then start to see a creep. Mm -hmm. uh, this will not be a, a price recovery like we've seen historically. It's going, to be, uh, it's going to be slow. It's going to be gradual. And that creates concerns for us back when we get all the way out to 2020. But you can't, you can't strip out the, the non-market effects like Brexit or, or you know, concern mm -hmm. about growth in the emerging economies. I mean, it's just been a weight to the tape on oil, 51 down to 50, 47, 49, and just wither oil right now. I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a belief? Uh, you, know, we, you know, we've been saying we're going to range trade 45 yeah, to 50, yeah, okay. and that's, you know, and we, just, we, can't, 
we don't break out below. We don't break out above it, and uh, you know we seem to have a fairly solid floor, sort of in the mid forties. Yeah. Skip York with us with Woods McKenzie as we uh, look at oil, uh, uh, Doctor York. Um, I, I I look at. Wood McKenzie, and they do a little bit of a different business. If you were at a conference table right now, what is the insight of the Wood McKenzie team that I need to know? Uh, I think it's. I think there's two. There's a near term. You know, the near term insight is that the recovery in, in U.S. oil production it, it will come, but it's going to be much slower than than people expect it to be. Or that you thought like a year ago. Or that we thought yeah. a year ago. Okay. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a bit more protracted, and as the longer we delay. Uh, sort of the slower it might be because it, just because of the supply chain is falling apart. What does that mean? That, that's that's dramatic. What does that statement? Yeah, mean? we you know we basically <clears throat> when we talk to operators, they, the reason why they think the recovery is going to be slower than people expect is uh, the first one's going to be financing. Can I actually, you know, can I actually access capital markets to uh, to supplement investment greater than cash flow? Uh, or you know, and so do I find it, have the financial health to do it? Then they quickly turn to the supply chain. Uh, the equipment's been idled. You can't idle that equipment very long before it starts to need maintenance. And so you call up for a rig, and the drilling company says, "I'll, I'll get it to you in a couple of months because I've got to get it back and working." And yeah. oh, by the way, I have to hire people to run that rig, and they've scattered. Now, and, and folks, I've been remiss on this. I mean, we've been a little bit distracted with what's going on in Europe. Market's negative three right now. The VIX 15.25 trading before market opening. Let's review, Skip York. Where were you telling me and Michael McKee to take our 101K and load the boat on Exxon not long ago? Bear market in Exxon. World's coming to an end. Negative 26%. Right now, it's a negative 9% off the highs of 2014. That chart looks like Exxon's going to go to record highs. Wait, oil was 100. Granted, it got to 29. And we've had a bull market, a mini bull market in oil. We can debate that forever. How does Exxon retain that value? And doesn't it make it the ultimate buy with a modest recovery towards 100. Okay, well, well, first of all, let me declare my biases that I'm an alumni of Exxon, and so I still I love the company. I love I love the stock. It's just done really well. You for root me. for the football team, and, and, and I root for the football team. Um, the uh, I think that where Exxon does this is where Exxon always surprises people is that when you get into a downturn, they get even more aggressive on cost and technology. And so they come out of every downturn with a lower cost per barrel of running the business. And that just why, and as prices recover, they okay, capture but that. Mike, help me here. Mike, Mike, you and I can do the math. $100 oil, Exxon generated $61 bazillion of EBITDA. It's been more than halved to $28 billion, 61 to 28 And the stock's down 9%. That's surreal. That's like arguing about Texas A&M football. It's surreal. I don't know where to go with Texas A&M, but <laughs> I, here's what I'm, I'm wondering about this uh, is we, we look at the price and we say they can't make money, but Exxon's a company. It sells stuff. So we, we focus so much on what's being produced. It's really what's being demanded, right, that, that matters to yeah. them. And demand has not fallen. It's it's not increasing maybe as fast as it was, but uh, the world is not wanting less oil over the last 18 months. 
Right, right. I think that there's two things to remember is that oil isn't a revenue business, it's a margin business. So even if my revenue line is dropping, if I can drive that cost line down faster, uh, margins improve. And that's a, a lot of what Exxon's been doing in the cycle. And then to your point, uh, Exxon's an integrated oil company. So the upstream has been uh, getting hammered for two years, but the downstream and the chemicals part of the business is benefiting from those lower uh, prices, and so that should be reflected yeah. in the stock. Mike, five-year dividend growth, Exxon, 10.4%. I would have never guessed that in a million years. Full disclosure, folks, I don't own a share of ExxonMobil. I sold them all to skip York at $100 a barrel. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, uh, I bought some ExxonMobil last week. Couple gallons worth. <laughs> Very good. That's, that's my involvement. In it. Now, now that we've done disclosure, but, so yeah, are the other majors in, sort of in the same boat? I would imagine. Yeah, uh, you know, it's to a varying degree of you know how you know how capital discipline. You you can't develop capital discipline in the downturn. You've got to be capital disciplined across the cycle, and that's a bit of the Exxon difference. But the difference between the ma mega majors and and sort of then the international. The large internationals or the small independents in the U.S. is that they tend to be more capital disciplined that relative to the other guys down the chain. And so you sort of see them now positioning themselves for, for growth. We saw BP sanction a large LNG project last <clears throat> week. Uh, Chevron sanctioned uh, the next expansion of the Ten Geese project in Kazakhstan earlier this week. You're starting to see those oil okay. companies starting to make those steps. There's a headline. You know, they're the oil companies positioning for growth. Skip York with us, uh, with Woodman Kenzie. And Skip, I, I look at natural gas, and I guess it's been 30 years of disappointment is how I'd put it. There's a story that's constructed, whether it's LNG or this. I know the Panama Canal's changing the dynamics, and there's this, that, and the other thing. Help me with natural gas. Is there a trend, or is it just this malaise under three down to two gazillion BTUs per cubic, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I think the gas market, there's, you know, the, there will be a, a slight uptrend, but the, the cost curve is so flat. There are so much reserves that are economic between 4 and $5 uh, a million, uh, you know, per thousand cubic feet that, uh, that even if prices start to rise, they're going to they're hit a ceiling sort of in that 4 to $5 range. So the, so, and that's our view. Our view is that gas prices will rise from where they are now, but they're not going to breach 4 or $5 for years because the resource base doesn't require a, a price higher than that. It, it, are we in a sort of a race between uh, fuel efficiency and uh, supply? Oh, that's a really good. That's a really good question. I mean, that because you know, in the long term, over over time, you know, fuel efficiency is you know, fuel efficiency. I mean, we're supposed to technology. go up to fifty five miles per gallon or something in the next few years. Uh, the law says. Yeah. So the you know so the but remember that uh, fifty five miles per gallon on a new sale isn't fifty five miles per gallon Not in on the Tom's fleet. Car. But yeah. yeah. But you know, as the fleet turns over, it gets more fuel efficient as. You know, as productivity improves on oh. the supply side, you know, both of those are downward pressure on, on price. Have we reached peak demand? No. From a U.S. perspective, <clears throat> we're getting close. Europe's already turned. Japan's already turned. The U.S. will will see that that bend uh, sort of in the next year. Describe that second. bend. That bend is going to be driven by gasoline, and it's going to be driven by fuel efficiency. Right. Uh, you know, we've, we've de-oiled 
uh, a lot of the economy already from you know getting out of fuel oil and diesel and power brilliant. generation. What, what percentage have we de-oiled? That's a brilliant. I can I steal that? De-oiled. De-oiled. <laughs> I got to put that on Twitter. That's just just brilliant. You know what percentage of the of the U.S. oil demand ha, has, has de-oiled? Fuel, has de-oiled. Uh, you know, I would say it's probably sort of the neighborhood of range of 10 or 15 percent because gasoline and diesel road transportation is just, you know, the big behemoth in the demand equation uh, for the U.S. So we've stripped oil out of all those other sectors. Um, but the fuel efficiency in the CAFE standards is now going to attack the, you know, that base demand load. So of does your beloved Exxon, do they have a strategy? Do they fly McKinsey in to tell them what to do in a de-oiled world? Well, I'll tell a, a 20 quick, or 40 years from now. I'll tell a quick McKinsey story is that uh, I was once in a room when I was with Exxon and someone said we should bring in some consultants to help us. And an Exxon executive stared at him and said, what makes you think that somebody who's never been in the industry knows our business better than somebody that's been in the industry 100 years? So, you know, they're, they're very internalized. What, what's Exxon's strategy? It's not a dash to gas, but over time, and, and it's been for the last 20 years, the Exxon portfolio is shifting from oil to gas because gas is going to be a fuel of the future for the emerging world through power generation through, and eventually penetrating into things like road, gener- uh, road transportation. And, you know, Exxon will always pivot to where the market, you know, Exxon's strategy mm-hmm. at the end of the day is to skate where the puck is going, not skate where the puck is. Yeah. My strategy is the Nash Rambler doesn't like the modern gasolines. That's gotta, my strategy. Got to turn over that fleet. <laughs> Skip York with Woods McKenzie. Fabulous. Fed minutes out yesterday showed that the Central Bank of the United States was concerned about two particular things at their last meeting, the situation in the labor market in the United States and the situation with the UK and its pending Brexit vote. Well, the UK has now voted and tomorrow the next jobs report is upon us. Mohamed El Arian has been talking about both uh, senior advisor on the economy to Allianz and a Bloomberg View columnist. He joins us now. Mohamed, thanks for for being with us today, you're writing the U.S., uh, the, you know, the main, major issue for the Fed was the, the labor market. You're writing that the U.S. not only should get a strong jobs report, it needs a strong jobs report. We do, and we do in three different ways. More job creation than the 38,000 of last month. A rise in the participation rate, which worrisomely has fallen by 0.4 percentage points in the last two months. And finally, higher wages. That is fundamental to fueling a sustainable recovery and hopefully getting out of this sluggish 2% growth that we've been in for such a long time. What happens if we get those kind of numbers? We got 38,000 last month and basically the entire world stopped spinning on its axis. Yeah, we did because the data has been mixed. And that was such a stunningly low number that it led a lot of people and markets in particular to to completely revised the outlook. Um, the irony is the economy, the Fed, and the markets all need strong jobs report for long-term sustainability. But in the short term, a strong jobs report could actually cause more market volatility, especially in the fixed income market, where traders have effectively sidelined the Fed. There are so many things to talk about. I mentioned your essay today on how we staggered to the Friday jobs report. I would love to understand the game theory 
that the Italian government has on the Italy banking crisis. We've had a raging debate across surveillance in the last three days on this. By definition, doesn't there have to be a will to have a cram down of sorts where people take losses? That's got to be part of the equation, right? So bail-in should be part of the equation. The problem is that bank debt has been sold to the retail sector in Italy. And politically, a bail-in is very difficult. Uh, You know, you look at, and and I love the conversations you've been having all all morning um, about this issue. The banking system is in a secular journey towards being more of a utility around the world. Then add to that cyclical headwinds that include lower interest rates, which eat eat away at at earnings potential, and lower growth that undermines the credit quality. And you have a a sector that's very much in play. Now, if you put on top of that the notion that you're going to bail in retail sector, then you also have a political issue. And that's what Italy is facing right now. And it's playing out in very difficult discussions between Brussels and Rome. And then another game theory item is the property casualty firms in the United Kingdom. Obviously, they're illiquid. They can't, you know, there's shocks and they have to shut down trading. Do you take that liquidity event over to other more liquid asset classes? Or is it discreet to commercial real estate? So first, this is in no way similar to Lehman. This is not about the payments and settlement system. This right. is not about counterparty risk in the banking system. This is about a sector that overpromised liquidity. And we've got to get hold of this notion that you cannot have vehicles that promise daily liquidity but invest in illiquid assets. Um, you know, they are prone to accidents, and we're seeing it again. I think the sector as a whole is going to get hit hard, but it will be an opportunity, mm. especially for those with permanent capital. The uh, EU, you mentioned the, the difficult negotiations. The EU says we've got rules. Uh, what's more important, to fix the banking system or to stick to the rules? Hopefully, you can stick. You can fix the banking system sticking to the rules. That's the whole point of having reformed your rules, is so that you can fix it. Um, you, you know this, Mike and Tom, really well. Reform has short-term costs. Um, so people speak well of reform until they have to implement it. And the minute they, they face a short-term cost, they would rather postpone the reform. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem we're seeing all over the world. Uh, Mohammed, the, the polarity of a surveillance debate is Luigi Zingales of Chicago uh, with an urgency about the Italian bank suggesting the government may fall. And Davide Serra, who's exceptionally competent, is a bank analyst with his work at Morgan Stanley for years, saying this is way blown out of proportion and there can be some form of hybrid government workout of the Italian banks. Which should our audience listen to, Zagalis or Serra? And the truth is somewhere in between. I mean, yeah, I, knew you were, I knew you were going to go yeah. there. I mean, we knew yeah. that, Michael. But, but remember, reconciling perception and reality in markets can take time. Sometimes perceptions can take control of markets, overshoot, and then create their own dynamics. That's particularly a risk for the banking system. And when you have hybrid securities that change their nature depending on where the bank is trading, you can have these multiple equilibria, um, as, as, as you call it, Tom, whereby one bad outcome leads to another bad outcome, and, and you don't go mm. back. You don't okay. go back to a me. Flogging your book, The Only Game in Town. Mohammed, congratulations. It's done extremely well. What's the liquidity delusion right now? 
You see it in what's happening in the UK property sector. The liquidity delusion is when investors buy assets believing that if they collectively change their mind, the market will accommodate their exit in an orderly fashion. And as we saw in high yield, even as we saw in some segments of the U.S. Treasury market, TIPS, for example, the system has overpromised liquidity to its investors. And investors should price in a much higher liquidity risk premium than they have so far. I mean, Mike, jump in here, please. I'm monopolizing. Thing. I'm sorry. I love Muhammad's chapter. <laughs> no, no, Muhammad's chapter 21. When desirable and feasible differ, is that like talking to your kids? I think so. <laughs> it may be. Uh, we've got to talk about Brexit before we let you go here. You're, you've been noting uh, that uh, this is one of those T-junction moments for the United Kingdom. Uh, the, they need to get their act together or uh, they're going to suffer the consequences. Yeah, you know, it's not often that you put in play both the current and capital account of a balance of payments. And that's what the UK has done with this Brexit vote. No one's quite sure about the trading relations that it's going to have with the EU. So the current account is in play and the capital account is in play because it no longer makes sense to establish yourself in Britain to serve the rest of Europe. So when both the capital and the current account are in play and when the central bank cannot use the interest rate instrument to stabilize the currency, which is the case for the Bank of England, Mm -hmm. you get all sorts of potential outcomes. So unless you fill the void quickly, Unless the UK and the EU come up with an alternative arrangement, there's a lot more volatility ahead for the fifth largest economy in the world, and there's a lot more uncertainty ahead for the largest single economic region, which is the EU. With your work over the, oh, go ahead, Mike, please. please I was going to say, there's two views of where this is going to go. You know, at the Fed, they're basically saying, "Yeah, bad for you, but not so bad for the United States." Yeah, I think we control our destiny in the United States, our economic destiny. But as we have found out over the last few weeks, we do not control our yield curve. Our yield curve is being influenced by what's happening in Europe. So you have this very interesting divide between financial values and fundamentals. And this is uncharted territory for the U.S. I grew up, like others, thinking the U.S. is the large economy. It's not a small economy. It's a large economy, and it controls both its economic and financial destiny. We're starting to see that the U.S. Mm. may not be so large when it comes to financial markets. And Dr. Alarian, thank you so much. Mohammed Alarian writing in Bloomberg View today on the American job economy. His book, highly recommended, the only game in town. Mike mentioned T-Decision. To me, that's the best chapter. His work on game theory there is just brilliant. The only game in town. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.